Good morning. We're reading Genesis 14 this morning, verses 1 through 24. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as the El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. Johanna, that was great. (laughs) Our poor scripture readers, as wonderful as they are, have to go through the book of Genesis. And that's not the end of the insane names and places. And I told all of them in an email, because I wanted to protect myself. I told them, if you ever want an out and you don't want to read a passage like that, just let me know and, you know, either somebody else who wants to do it or I'll do it myself, that's fine. So Johanna was up for the challenge and thank you, my friend, very much. So there appears to be a lot going on in Genesis chapter 14. A lot of strange names, a lot of strange places, but there really is a point to it all. There is. We see yet again that Abram is learning how to live by faith. God is teaching Abram how to live by faith. And when I say faith, I mean more than. So this is what the Bible means by faith. It means more than just belief. More than just uh, uh, an intellectual assent to something that you think is true. The Bible's concept of faith is more like trust. You believe that God exists? Fine. But do you trust him? Do you trust what he has said? Do you trust in his promises? That's what the Bible really means by the word faith. And so Abram is learning how to walk with this God that has reached out to him. Learning how to walk by faith. Now, it seems that world events, contemporary events, are intersecting with Abram's life. How many thousands of stories have been told as a result of World War II? How many personal stories of how world events have affected individuals and families and friendships have been told just by one major historical event? Think of all the stories. Think of all the books and the movies. Thousands, right? that have been told about personal lives that were impacted by a major world event. Well, in this situation, a regional war, a regional conflict, has a major impact on Abram's life, on his family's life. Now, I want to ask you a question. What do you think causes people to do remarkable things? Great things, seemingly impossible things. What causes people to do seemingly impossible things? What do you think? Wow, okay. Desperate circumstances, opportunity. Somebody over here. Trust, cling to, rely on the Lord. Yeah. All different answers at the same time. Yeah, in the back. Necessity. Yeah. And I think in the, in the, right here I heard desperation too, right? Eric said desperation. Good. Yeah, necessity. Any other thoughts? What causes people to do seemingly impossible or maybe in some, from some people's perspective, absolutely crazy things? Yeah? Something that's way bigger than us or collectively you feel 
something that's way bigger than us. So you feel collectively something needs to be done. Okay. Yeah. Financial motivation, right. So there are, there are virtuous reasons, and there are sometimes questionable reasons as well. Did you mean financial questionably or in a good light? <laughs> Capitalists make money, right? So sometimes it's, it's about profit. People do great things or seemingly impossible things to make a profit. Okay, what else? Yeah. Family ties. Love makes people do crazy things or great things. Good. Yeah. Sometimes there's, there's a vacuum of leadership or a, dull, a dearth of response and you step up because nobody else will. Conviction. Conviction. Integrity. Conviction. Excellent. Yeah, was there one more maybe? One over here? Oh, okay, good. There's also like, um, uh, 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 she, she said, fight or flight, right? So there can be a physical, physiological, um, uh, mental response to something. Excellent. Yeah, maybe one more. Yeah. Survival. You don't have a choice. Yeah, and so you act. Excellent. Okay. Great. Good responses. Thank you. People, people do seemingly great or impossible or outstanding things for a lot of of reasons. Some are virtuous, some are questionable. But what I hope to show you today, as we look at this chapter of Abram's life, is that faith, the kind of faith that the God of the Bible gives to people and allows people to nurture in themselves, faith produces courage and faith produces generosity. Those are some of the fruits of biblical faith. Courage, and generosity. Now God's promise to Abram begins to unfold here even more. Remember what God said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He called Abram out of his pagan existence in western Mesopotamia. And he said, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless your family. And through you and your family, I'm going I'm to bless all families on the earth. Now, this promise begins in some very practical ways to play out in Abram's life. You see now in Genesis 14 that Abram is beginning to become a blessing to the nations around him. Here's the historical setting. In the ancient Near East, you had big kings and little kings. And scholars refer to the big kings as suzerains and the little kings as vassals. So you have suzerain kings and vassal kings, and sometimes they would create alliances. The big king would protect the little king uh, from other military threats. Uh, but the price for that protection was tribute, was servitude of one nation to another. It came at a high cost. And so what happens here is you have, you have a delegation, you have an allegiance of four big kings in western Mesopotamia, headed up by this guy, Keterliamer. And you have these five little kings closer to where Abram is uh, in the Dead Sea region, just east of Canaan. Uh, and these little kings, these vassal kings, uh, rebelled, uh, the historical account tells us. They probably rebelled by stopping the tribute. Right? They stopped sending the payment in on purpose. Uh, so 
that precipitated a military response. So these four big kings from Western Mesopotamia, they come out to squash the rebellion, uh, to subdue these five smaller kings. And on their way, they just go through the Transjordan, uh, raping and pillaging uh, the, the, the towns and the cities and, and the settlements until they get to uh, the southern region of the Dead Sea and they come to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah and they attack and they, they romp, they rout, they destroy and uh, they take prisoners of war captive uh, and they take all the possessions. They even capture Lot, who you might remember has moved to Sodom. Lot has become very wealthy and they take him and his people, and his possessions, and they head back west. But by providence, now providence is a technical theological word, and it means this, that God works in history, through events, and through real people to accomplish his divine purposes. You look at the newspaper, and you can assume that how horrific things may be or how encouraging things may be all over the world, God is working providentially behind and above all these events. So by providence, a war refugee escapes and finds Abram living up in the hills in Canaan. And he tells Abram that Lot and his people have been captured. So Abram embarks on a rescue mission. Abram and his servants, he's got over 300 servants. Remember, Abram is wealthy. He has a lot, of, a lot of things and a lot of cattle and a lot of people under him. Abram and his servants and three allies living in the area. So apparently Abram had made an allegiance uh, with three neighbors uh, who are joining along with him. Assumed, assume, I'm assuming with their servants as well. They form a coalition and they go out and they conduct a night ambush. Now, how is it possible for a small force to rout a large force? It's not that difficult if you do it at night, dividing your forces, and you're attacking a force that's already depleted from battle in energy and strength and morale and people and resources. And a force that's trying to hold on to and contain prisoners of war and all the spoils that they had captured. So Abram and his allies and their servants, they conduct a nighttime raid and they are able uh, to force this coalition, this coalition of big kings away quickly to the point where they can't even take the spoils and the people that they had captured. They leave them behind and Abram is able to recapture all that was lost and Abram becomes a victorious liberator. Now, there are two contrasting responses to this victory. Uh, you have two kings uh, come out to greet Abram after the conflict is over. First, you have Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And scholars believe that Salem, which means peace, Salem is likely Jerusalem, which will become an incredibly important city later on in the history of Abraham's descendants. But Melchizedek, king of Salem, the king of righteousness, comes out to greet Abraham. Apparently, Melchizedek is, is somehow a God-fearing Canaanite. 
uh, it says he is priest of God Most High. So he's a king and he's a priest. And he honors Abram with a big celebration feast. Brings out bread and wine, we're told. He also honors Abram with a righteous blessing. And he says to Abram, in verses 19 and 20, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. We basically hear nothing else about Melchizedek. It's a very mysterious character. He comes up again very briefly in the Psalms, and, he's, and, and he becomes a major focus of interest in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. For now, let's just say that he's a mysterious figure. He appears out of nowhere, and then we never hear anything about him again. All we know is that he knows Abram's God. He's a king, and he's a priest. And he blesses Abram. He honors Abram with a feast, and he blesses him with a benediction uh, from God Most High. And now Abram responds to Melchizedek by giving him, this is interesting, It says, Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. So all the spoils, everything that Abram had captured back, which, from a military perspective, is now his right. He's the victor. He's the conqueror. He could keep it all and probably make a claim as the most powerful person in the region. And what Abram does is he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had captured. Now, this is significant because you really learn two things about this. First, Abram defers to Melchizedek as the one who is greater. As a king and a priest in the area, Abram respects him and shows him honor by giving the spoils, a tenth of them, to him. The other thing is significant is Abram is, this is a priest of God Most High. So in a sense, Abram is giving the spoils to God. So he shows honor to this king and he worships the Lord. And what you really see here is Abram's not really the champion. God is. There's another response, though, to Abram's victory. The king of Sodom, who comes out in a very different manner. And in verse 21, uh, this is what he says to Abram. Give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. I want my people back, but I'll give you all, all the booty the gold and silver and, and, and all the riches. This, this is like an infamous statement. This is, up, this is like, with, for me, this is kind of like uh, leave the gun, take the cannolis type of a statement. Uh, th- this is infamous. This guy is a crook. Um, and this is, this is character development. This is plot development for what's going to happen later in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is their king. Give me the people. Take the goods for yourself. Now look. This guy just got whooped. This guy just got his head handed to him on a platter. He is completely in Abram's debt. His people and his resources were recaptured by a a tent-dwelling foreigner. So he is in Abram's debt, and yet he comes to Abram and said, Hey, I want my people back, and I'll I'll let you keep all the stuff. I'll let you keep all our stuff. It doesn't belong to him anymore. He lost it, and Abram captured it. It's Abram's. Abram, however, responds in a very interesting way. He says to the king of Sodom in verses 22 through 24, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours. 
lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. This is oath language. He's telling the king of Sodom, this was never about the money. This was never about profit. This was never about asserting myself in the region. This wasn't about an advantageous opportunity. War makes some people rich. Conflict makes some people powerful. But Abram is saying it was never about any of that. This, this is about faith. This is about a relative of mine, which you and I already know, Lot really didn't deserve to be rescued. With the decisions that he's made in his life, Lot kind of had it coming to him. Nonetheless, for Abram, this was about faith. This was about love. This was about duty. Faith empowers people to look beyond themselves. The kind of faith that God is cultivating in Abram, it empowers people to look beyond themselves and to act beyond themselves. To look and to act. Now, God's promise produces in us faith that produces in us courage and generosity. The truth of God, the promises of God, as we own them, as we begin to trust what God has revealed to us, what God has said, the result of that trust will be courage when you need it. And generosity when it's needed. And I think we need to hear this as Western Christians because we, we're very individualistic. That's the, that's the society in which we've been raised. It is not enough to focus on personal signs of growth. Now, if you're a Christian and you're wondering, am I growing in my Christian faith? It is not enough for you to just focus on personal signs of spiritual maturity. Man, just look at her. She really knows her Bible. She always, she always has uh, a passage of scripture to recite. And she's read the Bible many times. Look at him. He, he really understands his doctrine. He really knows his theology. He's read all the right books. He's read every book on our book table. He's got a great testimony. Such an encouraging testimony. And all the points are there. Look, don't misunderstand me. All of these are vital aspects of growing in faith. They are all vital, critical means of spiritual growth. What I'm saying is that there are also social signs of Christian maturity. Are you growing in your faith? Are you learning to trust in the God of truth and promise? Don't just look internally. Look outwardly. How is your maturing faith affecting the people around you? There are social signs to reach beyond the comfort and safety of ourselves and of who we are and what we have and to defend people who are oppressed, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. To defend those who are oppressed and to bless those who are in need. Abram's example here, he's not always going to be an example to us. But here he is. Abram shows that as we trust in God's promises to defend us and to bless us, we're liberated to defend and bless one another. Abram knows God has his back 
Abram knows God's preparing an inheritance for him. Abram is free to defend and bless Lot. And not only Lot, but a lot of people, perhaps the entire region. And so he is becoming, by faith, a blessing to the nations. Courageous faith, generous faith, shared among us as the community of faith. Now, what we have together, it will extend out into our community, into our world. So, so it's, not, it's no longer you and I defending one another, Abram and Lot. Now the world sees that we are taking care of one another. And that enables us and frees us up to be kind to our neighbors and to bless the world around us. A maturing faith reflects the heart of God, does it not? Everything, amen, everything that we are seeing in Abram is a reflection that God's priorities are becoming Abram's priorities. Look at Psalm 72. We read it together earlier. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. Psalm 72 went on to say, from oppression and violence, God redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. That's the heart of God. A maturing faith impacts the people around you for their blessing. Now, a word of caution. Do you notice that Abram didn't impose his ethics on his friends? Remember, he has three allies. As far as we know, these are just pagan people living. They're his pagan neighbors living in Canaan. He has three allies. And what does he say to Sodom? I don't want any of your stuff. However, make sure that my friends get the portion of the spoils that they've earned. In, in sticking out their necks for a king and a people that they don't even know. Okay. So what Abram, this is very interesting. Abram chooses to not take the money and the resources, but he says, hey, make sure my friends who have joined me in this quest, in this struggle, make sure they get uh, what they deserve. And I find that very interesting. This is how John Calvin, the theologian, responded to this, this aspect of, of the account. Abram will not allow his liberality to be injurious to his allies. This also is not the least part of virtue, to act rightly, yet in such a manner that we do not bind others to our example as to a rule. And I think that's important. Look, there are moral absolutes. Surprise. There really are moral absolutes. God really does care about what's going on in the world, and so should we. But how you apply those moral absolutes to particular situations, how you choose to act and respond is not absolute for everybody else. How you express your faith in God, in acts of kindness, in defending those who are weak, in encouraging and blessing and generosity others, does not necessarily apply to how others respond in faith. So I just mention that to say, as we bless one another and as we bless the community in which we are, because as we grow as a church, we are going to be more equipped and more enabled to be a bigger impact and a bigger blessing 
upon our surroundings. We also have to exercise discernment in that we each have been blessed and gifted in different ways. And there's not simply one way to express our faith. So there are moral absolutes, but how each individual responds to those absolutes is not in and of itself absolute. Okay. And so Abram, this is really important. If you want to be a blessing, if you're a Christian and you want to be a blessing to your non-Christian neighbors, it's important to understand this. As Calvin said, act rightly, yet in such a manner that you don't bind others to your conscience. Only God is Lord of their conscience. But guided by faith, confident in God's abilities to protect us, to defend us, together we can defend and bless anybody that's in our reach. You can't take care of all the world's problems. And not every need that you see or hear about or read about is a calling on your life. However, You can bless, you can defend those that are within your reach, within your ability to respond. Now, there are opposites to courage and generosity. And I think they're fear and selfishness. So you have courage and generosity, uh, and they are the children of faith. But there is also fear and selfishness, and they are the fruits of unbelief. Isn't it true uh, that we seek to bless ourselves? Isn't it true that we seek to advance our own wealth, our own profit, our own comfort, our own safety, and maintain our own good reputations? Isn't that often what's driving our decisions? Isn't it true that sometimes the greatest acts, the the, the most outrageous acts that we commit, our greatest endeavors are often, often in seeking ourselves, our own projection, the protections of our immediate family and, and peer group. Quite often our career choices, and I've had to admit this in prayer, the entire week as I'm looking at this passage, often our career choices, our social connections, our personal private time, often driven primarily by our own appetites. Now remember, Abram takes the spoils, doesn't keep any of them, and gives one-tenth of them to Melchizedek, basically to God. Takes 10% of what he's, what he's earned. And he gives it to God. It's interesting. I, I, I checked the stats on this. Um, Christians in America, according to both, uh, according to studies done by both faith-based Christian organizations and secular organizations, Christians in America give, on average, about 2.5% of their income away annually. Christians, on average, give about 2.5% of all they have and all they make away. Actually, Christians in America during the Great Depression gave more of their income away than Christians do right now. I also discovered that a majority, just looking at it from a different vantage point, that a majority of United States Christians actually give less than 2% of their income away. And I don't just mean 
offerings to your church. I mean everything. Church, uh, nonprofit organizations, less than 2%. Three-fourths of, the pop, of our population of, of Christians in America give less than 2% away of their income every year. But one in every five United States Christian gives away absolutely nothing. And if you want to see where the sources are cited, I'll show you. Now, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not, not, trying, to, not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody. Uh, it's, hard from, it's hard for numbers to lie when you consider Abram's generosity in this passage. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but I am, I am suggesting this. And, and this is what one secular uh, writer said when looking at the data. Perhaps American Christians are not as generous as they think they are. I had the pleasure last week at the Reconciliation and Justice Conference in St. Louis. I had the pleasure of listening to a leader from Togo in West Africa, a Christian leader, Macklin Basse. And he said that since, uh, since Great Britain relinquished its colonial control, over Togo in the 1960s, since the 1960s, the nation has been ruled by one dictatorship, by one family. And he said, if you come and visit us in Togo, if you come and visit churches in Togo, you will meet among the poorest Christians in the world. But you will meet some of the most joyful people you have ever met. And I began thinking about that, and I thought, you know, based on what he began to describe, how they live by faith and what they have to face, I began to realize that every day they have to remind themselves that God will protect them and that God will provide for them. Every day they have to exercise simple trust. Will I believe today that God will protect me? Will I believe today that God will provide for me? When they pray, give us our daily bread, they literally mean it. And I started thinking, if you have to think that way every day, that's like spiritual weight training, right? That, that's, that is training yourself every day through adversity to say and to finally answer, yes, I do believe that God will defend me. I do believe that God will provide for me. But let me ask you a question. When have you had to exercise simple trust on a daily basis for an extended period of time? Let's just ask ourselves that question. When have we day after day had to exercise the simplest form of trust? Will God protect me today? Will God provide for me today? It's no wonder that when our lives are thrown into disarray, we panic and we don't know what to do because our faith, our faith is unconditioned, spiritual atrophy. When we're pressed, we freak out because we're not used to asking ourselves every day, will God defend me today? Will God provide for me today? Now, if that is you, and if you do know that, and if you have lived that, and if you're living it now, be encouraged, friend. Because if you trust God, 
He will allow you to be an encouragement through your experience to others when they begin to suffer. The, the, the book of James, James chapter 1, says something remarkable, and it speaks directly to this itch, issue of spiritual atrophy, an inability or a rustiness in simple trust. Consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature. And complete, not lacking anything. Now, the courage and the generosity that we see in Abram in this moment is just, it's just a faint whisper. It's just a glimpse, a weak glimpse of the kind of courage and generosity we would see from a man hanging on a Roman cross 2,000 years after Abram. Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, was responding to accusations that he was possessed by Satan. That's why he was doing all these amazing things. All the religious leaders said, you're, you're possessed. And Jesus said, well, no, I'm not possessed. Why would I be casting out demons if I'm working for Satan? It's just the opposite. And then he made a point. He said in Mark chapter 3, verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house, the strong, the strong man being Satan. He said no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is offering right in that moment a picture of what he had come to accomplish, of what he had come to do. You may have heard this before, or you may not realize this, but this is what the Bible says, that all of humanity is under oppression, that all of humanity is under the dominion of Satan, that Satan, for a while, has been given dominion of this world, and all of us, not by choice, all of us are, subject, are subjected to his oppression. And his oppression is so complete that that people, unless God wakes them up, are deceived. Don't even know they're being oppressed. Don't even know that Satan has dominion over them. And we cannot escape it. And what's even worse, the Bible says, is we don't deserve to be rescued from it. And before you think that's terribly offensive, let me explain to you why. Because the Bible makes it clear that not only are we under the oppression of Satan, but we're accomplices. To Satan. Satan is a rebel. Jesus called him a liar and a thief and a murderer from the very beginning. And the Bible also says that like Satan, humanity has rebelled by choice against a good creator. Not a dictatorial suzerain, but a righteous, good, just, merciful God who has wonderful plans for us. So we are bound by the power of the ruler of this world and we are complicit in rebellion against God with the ruler of this world. But here is the grace of God, if you've never heard of it before. Here's the grace of God. We, we actually read about it in our confession of faith. Paul said to the Colossians, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. 
the forgiveness of sins. There is financial and economic and racial and political oppression in the world. There is an even greater oppression. It is spiritual oppression. And the Lord of that oppression is Satan himself. But Jesus, Paul says, has delivered us from his domain and delivered us from his tyranny by one act, one act of courage, one act of unfathomable generosity, a Roman cross where the Son of God hung for rebels and traitors to liberate them from Satan's dominion and give them hope and give them a new identity and give them a future. That is a picture of courage. That is a picture of generosity that before then and since then, the world has never known. And so, the one who liberates you from Satan as you trust in him and his words the one who delivers you from Satan can also deliver you from worry, from anxiety, from fear, from the things that bind you up and make you selfish, from the things that bind you up and make you afraid. In the context of his ministry, in the context of what Jesus was doing in releasing prisoners from this captivity, he said... Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And now, now you are ready to be courageous. Now you are ready to be generous. Even if courage simply means you're able to get out of your bed and live another day. By the grace of God, you will. Even if generosity means you give away a vacation or hobby money in order to make sure that the right thing happens in your family or to make sure that somebody in your life has something they desperately need and cannot live without. If God knows what we need, if God has promised abundantly more than we've ever asked for through his son, why worry? Why reserve who you are and what you have? Rather, since God is true in his promises, since he protects, since he defends, well, now you are free to give. Now you are free to defend. Now you are free to be a blessing. Faith produces courage. And faith produces generosity. So let's pursue as a church, individually, but, culture, but um, as a group, as a community, let's pursue justice in our lives. We're not all the police. We're not all the president. We're not all school teachers. But if you're a child of God, you have the promises of God and the protection and the blessing of God to be a blessing to others. In faith, be a blessing. Pursue justice. 
Let's be a merciful people to defend and to bless those who are in our reach. And it starts with the people who are sitting right next to you today, the people who are sitting behind you and in front of you. Amen? And it moves on into the people who live in the blocks all around us and in this county and as God allows in other places in this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we are amazed at the courage and the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor, so that we would not remain under the oppression of the devil and in the guilt of our own rebellious sin. But we praise you that in all graciousness and generosity, he came out of his throne and he lived among us. And, and I pray that you would help us to be that to each other. Signs of the grace of God, the generosity of Jesus. I ask that you would teach us how to live by faith and through faith grow personally and corporately. Keep our eyes on you that we may uh, consider the needs uh, of those who are in need. And we praise you and we worship you and we ask you, Lord, in confidence to defend us. And we ask you in confidence to provide. And through us, we ask you to work work in this community and in the lives of people that you will bring into our awareness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.